42? 20? Uh, you, know, you know I don't have that many fingers and toes. That's You can count to 20. Yeah, but you said 42. That's just a high number. That's just not really fair. Uh, so, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. The podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. Uh, I'm looking at you, Doc. But uh, without further ado, Miss <laughs> E.C. Ambrose, sometimes called Elaine by her friends. Uh, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and viewers? Hello. So my name is Elaine Isaac. I write principally as E.C. Ambrose or as E. Chris Ambrose. Uh, I describe my brand as knowledge-inspired adventure fiction, and uh, you do not want to be my hero. And they say knowing is half the battle, and the other half is violence. <laughs> Our heroes right. find that out the hard way, I'm told. So we'll get more to how her heroes are going to feel about her later in the interview, dear listener. But Doc, before we decide how far we go, she's got to answer the religion questions. Okay. <laughs> you weren't going to say how did we first find them? Oh, oh, you're right. I forgot. I blame Doc because, you know, now it's not cool to blame Russia anymore. So uh, as far as I know, this is a guest that, uh, that came to us Wait, through... Nick. <laughs> oh, he's not here. That's right. Nick Garber. It's his fault. Buy his comic. Um, but I think I think um, Elaine came to us through Mel Todd when she posted in the one of her writing groups. She did. Mistaken. But here's the crazy one. I met her years before at Dragon Con. So when she was like, and I went, I know that book. And then I went, wait, oh, I know you. Yes, we have to have you on because I have your book and I liked it. It was so much fun. How so, cool is that? Now, you're not the person that I, I faked my own death to sell the book, right? No, 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 no. I was in the vendor's room and I was like, and you're like, hey, yeah, no, this guy does like medicine, but like medieval medicine. And he also butchered meat. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. it's a very <laughs> dark book, but I really enjoy it. So, Thank you. And uh, so, I mean, how could I not, right? You never know who you're going to meet. And um and so, and that's what I always tell authors when they ask me, what should I do? And I went, when you go out of your hotel room, remember, you don't know who the people are that you're going to meet or where they're going to be later in life. And so, see, this is a perfect example. To... <laughs> All right, but Many I mean... years ago, when uh, my child was still in diapers, I met this wonderful woman while I was fleeing him and hiding at Dragon Con. <laughs> so first, first, he's not huh. that old. So diapers weren't that long ago for him. He's still a baby. Uh and second, I want to hear the story where she faked her own death to sell a book because I might need to take some notes. So, yeah. So uh, the Dragon Con booth, and um, I was probably, I believe, I was actually in costume as a medieval barber surgeon on this particular occasion. Uh, but I was part of a group author booth in the dealer's room, and uh, part of the shtick was you sort of, you know, stand by the aisle and have a copy of your book in your hands and chat with people as they came by and say things like, oh, you know, we're authors signing and selling our books. And and so this, uh, I believe it was a gentleman stopped and um, said, oh, is that one of the books that you wrote? And I said, yeah, you know, this is Elijah Barber. It's the first book in this series, you know, medieval surgery. Um, I hand the book over to him. He looks it over for me and he says, well, yeah, I mean, it sounds pretty good, but you know, you'll sign it for me. I said, oh, absolutely. He's like, yeah, but it'll be worth more when you die. So I took a pause. And then started to choke dramatically, rolled my eyes back and keeled over in the middle of the aisle. And he kind of looked down at me and went, 
I guess I gotta buy it now. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. So yeah, I went to Dragon Con dealership was a lot of fun, and I hope to be back there someday. We have such interesting people in our community, <laughs> don't we? I mean, I'd buy it after that too. I think after that kind of a display, you really have to. I think so, they would have felt really embarrassed if, you know, everybody who, who of course, but by then was turning to stare and figure out what was going on. You know. So, Nick Garber, if you watch this afterwards, because you didn't make it today, because, you know, the government wanted you to protect the border and do your job. But if you do, when you go to Comic-Con in California, you need to take notes, because I want a better story than this. You could do better. Challenge <laughs> to you, Nick Garber. I'm going to tell Come him this, too. And then, and then we'll have you two on, and you compare notes, like, who did the better death scene? Cool. All right. I'm in. All right. Good. Uh, my money is on her. Um, so on to the infamous religion questions. Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? I was raised in the church of Star Trek, but I have gone over to the dark side, and I'm going to say Star Wars. I hear they have cookies over there. Absolutely. So... Um, now, the next one, because we are polytheistic, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or The Wheel of Time? Lord of the Rings. So have you Makes read sense. the others, or are you just, and just a purist, or have you, that's the <laughs> only one in the group that you've read? Uh, I've read some of the others. I can't claim to have read the, uh, the, the complete works. In to be fair, The Wheel of Time is like 10 inches Longer thick per novel. Three volumes, yes. <laughs> so, you know, I've seen Bibles that are thinner than some of those novels. Although, yeah, <laughs> when I was judging for the World Fantasy Awards, one of the books that we got in was the Wheel of Time Companion. Um, and not having read the complete series, I was like, well, you know, I'll flip through this thing and sort of see what it has to offer. And reading some of the entries in there is kind of uh, set up like an encyclopedia, but for Wheel of Time. And it started to get me really interested in those books. And I thought, well, you know, someday maybe if I have uh, have broken my arm and can't write for a while, like a really long while, then maybe I will see if I can get back into them. It's going to take more than six weeks. <laughs> you could always dictate and then you don't have to worry about it because you've dictated with a broken arm. See, Unless you just really want to read the books. Unfortunately, I'm just probably never going to read The Wheel of Time and, under those circumstances. This is my daughter's excuse for not reading whatever I say is an awesome book that she should totally read. She just says, well, I'll read that when I have finished reading The Wheel of Time. <laughs> I, I like that. Good for her. <laughs> I'd give her to her own audiobook and say, here you go. <laughs> and you uh, can fast forward it that way. I mean, like, well, you could listen to it at like 1.5 speed, although narrators, I'm told, really hate it if you tell them that. But <laughs> I, I think, like, Brandon Sanderson and, and Robert Jordan together, like, their books are like, you've got to just slot two weeks to listen to it. George R. R. Martin's not any better. Or David Weber. But I can't read George R. R. Martin until he finishes the series. Otherwise, I'll be disappointed. He's never Ooh. finishing the series. I know, so I'll I never read the will. books. I think he will, because he's that kind of guy. So... I didn't really oh, no, no, no. My theory is he <laughs> has them finished. He's just not going to release them until well, afterwards because he likes the attention. Can't can't promise you that. Yeah. But the um, I, I remember not really sort of getting uh, Game of Thrones until I heard David Hartwell talking about um, George Martin's 
past and how he was a, a chess master who used to sort of travel around the countryside making extra money by playing multiple chess games at a time, like setting up in a high school gymnasium with 40 chess boards and walking around that room and playing 40 chess games at a time. And I thought, well, there you go. That explains everything. Interesting. That, that, yeah, no. <laughs> Just no. I could not do it. <laughs> so, but then again, I, I don't play chess. So. Do, you, do you play Elaine? Not anymore. Like I used to dabble, but you know, I was never, uh, I always felt that I should play chess as, as a proper nerd. It seemed like the thing to do. And, and yet it didn't really take hold of me the way that it did some of my friends. I play with my, my youngest, but I'm not what you would call probably that good. <laughs> <laughs> but I at least know what the pieces are mm -hmm. and what they can do. Yes. When JR tries to feel smart, he asks me questions about chess. And then I ask him questions about chemistry and math. Uh, so we, we've established this, that chemistry isn't real. It was made up by the government to trick the gullible. No, that's why Pi Day was, it was Pi Day was made up so that people could sell more math. I don't know about that, but let's, let's ask her about uh, her first love. <laughs> So, which was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? See, this is kind of a tricky one because the answer, I think, would have to be Ray Bradbury. And sci-fi or fantasy? Yes. Um, technically, I guess, sci-fi, or at least that's where he's usually shelved. But obviously, a lot of his work is fantasy or, or crosses that boundary. Well, I think for people who really started reading, particularly with some of the more established classic authors, that the boundaries back then were not as uh, clearly defined. They were more permeable and lumped together. Yeah, that certainly is what it seems like. I had a, um, a conversation with a friend of mine, actually. I just got off the phone with him before I came over to chat with you guys. And um, at one point, he's a, a ex-NASA so we were sort of talking about like how you got started in, in the thing. And he said, you know, how did you get started as a writer? And I said, well, I remember reading Ray Bradbury and just the, the feelings that his writing evoked for me and thinking mm -hmm. someday I want to do that. Um, I want to be the person who brings out those feelings. Uh, and my friend said, that's funny because he got into you know, astrophysics because he read Bradbury and he thought I, I want to do that. I want to send people to Mars. And, um, you know, we had both been inspired by the same author, but my take on it was I wanted to make people believe that they could go to Mars. Well, I think it's important to make people believe they can go to Mars because that's how it happens. I think both are equally important, but <laughs> I really think that you have to first inspire people to achieve before people can achieve. Otherwise, they kind of accidentally achieve. Right. So. The humanities can blaze the way in a lot of cases that the uh, and then the sciences come in and build the, the infrastructure that makes things happen. Yes, I definitely think so. I think uh, I think the first time I read something about that was in an Anne McCaffrey book and, they, and it was somebody a character like this. And anyone, if one person can think it, another person can build it. Hmm. Well, the the um, 
Okay, I am not muted. So the the Star Wars, for it's not Star Wars, Star Trek, for instance, has inspired scientists to actually say, is mm-hmm. this possible? And let me figure out the math. So you've got the Mexican physicist Miguel uh, Albuquerque, I think is how you say it. I'm butchering his last name. Um, but he's the one who did the Alcubierre drive, which is a you mm-hmm. know the mathematical formula for FTL. So, I mean, I think the science fiction can inspire people to say, is this even possible and how would I do it? Hey, we um, have we have clear metal now. Uh, and tablets sort of thing that the Star Trek had them just punching at, you know, cardboard or whatever it was on the prop side uh, in the 70s. So, I mean, like, and this isn't just, just a Star Trek thing. Like, every time someone says, well, what would I need to do that? And then they make up some hand wave them. And years later, scientists will say, Huh, I'm a nerd. I read that book. I wonder if that's possible. Let me figure it out. Mm-hmm. So I think I think there's room for that. And that's that's the beauty of speculative fiction. Is it can inspire the better angels among us. Yeah, um, I think you know, science fiction has that sort of reputation for being the fiction of ideas. Um, and I think that on the fantasy side, that you know, oftentimes fantasy is sort of denigrated as well, you can just make things up. Um which is kind of true, but you have to make them up in a clear, crisp, and believable fashion. So it's a lot more complicated than literally making things up. Uh, but, but where we're coming from is often inspiring those sort of feats of of humanity, of the things that people are capable of that maybe they didn't know that they were. Um, Philip Zimbardo, who was the guy behind the Stanford prison experiment, has now moved on and has a, um, a nonprofit called The Hero Project. And Part of what he's trying to do is figure out how do you inspire people to feats of heroism. Uh, one of the conclusions he reached early on is that you do that by story, by telling the kinds of narratives that get people excited, that get them inspired, that get them feeling like I could do that. I could step up and be that person. So even as far back as Tolkien, when he wrote the Lord of the Rings, was his, his stated goal was to create sort of the legend and myth ethos, the hero's journey mm-hmm. for modern, you know, Britons. And I think even if you're not doing it, because we've certainly started seeing fantasy stories come out and, you know, uh, rooted in other cultures, as much like, you know, the Lord of the Rings is rooted in, in the Europe, proto-Europe's. Uh, but they, they are basically creating modern hero stories that inspire people to be the better versions of themselves. So I think I, I think that's equally as valuable because tech by itself is nothing. It, it's the perfect pairing of the man and machine. And no, I'm not going full cyberpunk, but <laughs> like like the two together is what makes things mm-hmm. possible. So, but anyway, that's, that's a whole nother fireside chat we'll have to have someday. And <laughs> I'll get Doc to schedule that one. Uh, I'm sure okay. he'll remember. Maybe put it on, um, the, list. Put it on the list. Uh, Wait, Jerry, you were speaking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you voted off my island. All right. So, what is your first memory of engaging? I am in your island. <laughs> what is your first memory of engaging in speculative fiction as a genre? Was it watching, um, watching it on the TV, reading the books, uh, Ray Bradbury, or playing some sort of game? Like, where do you think you first discovered the concepts? So. It's definitely down to my dad. Uh, he was a fan of all the things from a pretty early state. And uh, when I was young, we had the tradition after dinner on Sundays that we would read a book out loud around the table. And of course, when these things first started, I was just listening to the stories. 
uh, you would be a chapter or two. I remember we read The Wolves of Willoughby Chase uh, was one of the early books. And we did read The Lord of the Rings uh, in that family format after doing The Hobbit and probably some other things as well. They're long chapters. They are. And I, I remember one of the first chapters that sort of I felt ready to read out loud to be part of the family tradition uh, was from the Lord of the Rings. And I remember it being one of the chapters that had lots of dwarvish names for things. <laughs> and just yeah. stumbling over this. There's one passage where um, Gimli is literally pointing to all of the mountains around them and giving the the dwarvish name and also the elvish name and, you know, the human language. And <laughs> I was a little surprised uh, we didn't get the Ent names for mountains in there too. But it's, it's a lot of mountains. And I'm a big fan of mountains, but maybe I didn't need all of the names. <laughs> no, like, I, I like a lot of details in a story. I know some people prefer the, you know, sort of the popcorn fiction of the pulp era where it was just, you know, just the story, move the story along mm -hmm. and don't give all the details. And so I, I tell people I like a lot of details. And they're like, oh, so you Lord of the Rings. And I'm like, well, Lord of the Rings is good, but I think maybe he took it just a little too far. <laughs> <laughs> There's a happy medium in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's it's not just the details; it's what the details and whether they're important. And I'm not sure that knowing every mountain's name was necessarily important. <laughs> What's even wilder is when you realize he wrote that as one novel, and the publisher was like, "Yeah, maybe we should split it up." <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what is it you love about speculative fiction as a genre? I like that it can hold up a funhouse mirror to our reality and kind of distort things in a way that reveals the truth we didn't know was there. Whether that's science fiction uh, kind of extrapolating a potential future and looking at the implications of technology um, or fantasy that is kind of holding up that mirror to human nature and saying, what could people be if we had powers or access to things that we do not now possess. Um, and kind of giving that reflection that is just a sidestep away from reality. And sometimes I think that helps us to think more deeply about it um, than if we had read a similar story, but with a real world setting in which all of the details were sort of precisely contemporary. Um, sometimes those things are more off-putting because you can't well, I don't know if I see myself in there. I don't know if I want to be in there. But, you know, I, I want to be in Narnia. I want to be in Middle Earth. Um, I want to be in Old Barzoom. Yeah, I wonder how many kids tried to, were disappointed when they opened their closets and they just couldn't, couldn't <laughs> get there. I know I checked mine. Yeah, I mean, there's that amazing C.S. Lewis quote that, you know, the child who is raised on fantasy does not despise a real forest because it is not fantastic to that child. Every forest becomes magic. Yeah. So how did your love of speculative fiction as a genre and all the possibilities that it gave, it gives humanity, like how did that translate into you telling stories in that space? So my first stories, um, we're, we're probably actually fanfic for Dragon Riders of Pern. <laughs> uh, during that era, you know, was like talking about the Bradbury connection when I wanted to, I wanted to be that person who could tell the stories, uh, but I hadn't quite worked out what, what my stories were to tell. Uh, I, I actually know several authors who got started writing by doing fanfic of Pern. So yeah, I, I, you're in good company. 
I actually had the opportunity to tell Anne McCaffrey that. Uh, I, I think it was at the, there was a science fiction writer's um, induction into the Grand Masters, you know, the Masters Hall of Fame. And she was there uh, and we all, all had name tags on as one does at these events. And I saw her and I sort of got my courage up to go over, you know, I'm going to talk to Anne McCaffrey and I'm going to tell her this story that one of my first speculative stories that I ever wrote was on Dragon Riders of Pern fanfic. And, you know, I went over to, to tell her this and she turned to her assistant. She was using a wheelchair at that time and turned to her assistant and said, Elaine Isaac, we have that book on our shelf, don't we? <laughs> and I was like, ah, I'm going to die. And McCaffrey has my book on her shelf. That's awesome. And, and it was just extraordinary. I was so, so glad that I had been able to have that moment. That's cool. So do you have any of those stories still? I think I might. When I was young and even more arrogant than perhaps I am now, uh, I had this impression that somebody somewhere would one day want sort of my collected writings. And of course, they would be more special because some of them were handwritten and some of them were typewritten on a literal typewriter and all of that. Uh, so I, I think I still have my archive of sort of antique words, which I'm a little bit afraid to go and look at. Um. <laughs> Okay. You know, at least she is honest about it. We had some <laughs> authors go, no. And then later they're like, yeah, I have it. I'm just not going to admit to it. <laughs> <laughs> Would I show it to you? Maybe not. <laughs> well, I don't know. If she sets up a Patreon, maybe that can be like the top tier. You can pay enough. You'll, she'll let you look at it. And we have fanfic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so many authors let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So were there any specific formidable moments you think that shape you as a storyteller? Uh, the, the day that I was stalked by a tiger. What? <laughs> it was so, uh, my husband and I wanted to have kids, you know, pretty early on, but we wanted to, to do some big traveling before we settled down. So we had these two trips, um, one to India and Nepal, and then the next year, one to China and Mongolia. And on the trip to Nepal, we were staying at the Tiger Tops resort on this could be a very long story. It could be a relatively short one. Uh, I'll go for the relatively short version. We've and got time. Keep going. You know, tiger Tops is one of the places where you go to hopefully see tigers in the wild. Um, it's one of their national, it's located in one of their national parks. So the first night we were there, we were staying at um, what they call the treetops lodge, uh, which is basically a, um, a lodge on stilts. So I was awakened in the night by this kind of strange noise. And it's, you know, it's my first night in the jungle. And how cool is that? And I'm really desperate to know what is making this huffing sound that I could hear. Uh, and the next morning when we walked down the steps to the ground uh, to go to breakfast, and there were very large cat prints through the lodge area underneath the building we had been sleeping in. And one of the guides said, oh, yeah, there was a leopard that has been hanging around and it, it walked through last night. Wow, that's really cool. You know, I wish I had been able to see it and how great would that be? So you know, we went off during the day and did various things and, you know, we did a river cruise and, and all the things one does. Um, and then my husband and I were scheduled to spend the next night at the tented camp. Um, so there was one other tourist who was coming along as well. So we had two guides, one in front and one in back and the three tourists. Uh, and each of the guides had a very large stick. So 
you know, we're walking along the trail. And of course, the reason you go to a place called the Tiger Tops is because you want to see tigers. So they're telling us about, uh, you know, sort of what to expect and that um, the thing about tigers is, you know, if you see them, it's because they're not hungry, because they're an ambush predator. So ordinarily, they don't, they don't want to be seen as long as they're hungry. Okay, that's kind of interesting. And they would stop and point out, oh, here's where, you know, a tiger clawed this tree. Uh, and, you know, male tigers are really territorial. So we're in the territory of this particular male tiger. You know, each one incorporates two female tigers, you know, sort of going along this whole thing. Uh, and then we start seeing tiger tracks along the trail. And so the guides are all excited. Look, you know, here's tiger tracks and how big they are and how they compare to the leopard tracks we saw last night. And then we get to this beautiful little waterfall, uh, spreads out into kind of a broad but shallow stream. And there's a little bridge that goes across it. So we start crossing this little bridge and we get to the other side and the tiger tracks are still wet. And we haven't seen a tiger at this point. And of course, one of the, the things that they uh, had said is, you know, you don't, if you see the tiger, it's because they're not hungry. So, <laughs> and, and you could see the two guides sort of pick up those very large hiking staffs that they're carrying and stand up a little straighter and look around a little more intently uh, as we're completing our walk. And it's, you know, I think it was about three miles or so from, from the lodge to the tented camp. So the tented camp consists of a bunch of sort of Girl Scout style, if you will, um, or I suppose military style canvas tents with the wooden poles inside. Um, and they do have flush toilets that are adjacent, which is awfully nice, you know. So, but it's it's just canvas. And there's like a sort of central pavilion where you go for meals. So we're shown to our tent. Uh, we go in for the evening meal. And there is sort of the head naturalist who's going to talk to us more about tigers and, you know, the sort of the ecology of tigers, the life cycle of tigers, the fact that um, when a tiger has started attacking baby rhinos, that you know that that tiger is older and they're looking for uh, slower prey. And that's often when they start to get injured and when they start to, you know, to go after people potentially. Um, and then they're telling stories about how, you know, occasionally people just go dis disappear in the woods because they go out to collect wood from their village and they're, all they ever find is a sandal. And one tiger that a couple of years ago that had uh, gone in and dragged a woman out of her house because they didn't have a door that would close. They just had a, had a curtain. And then the cook came out to serve and he had scars down one side of his face and was missing an ear. <laughs> So we got to hear his tiger attack story. And then we got sent to bed. So <laughs> now I'm lying in my bed in the in the tent. And we were told that there's going to be two guards at each end of the camp. And they have guns, but we're not to worry. Uh, so I'm lying in my bed and I start hearing this sound, which is a lot like the sound of the leopard from the previous night. <laughs> And I start thinking, oh, God, it's right outside my tent. Um, do I have anything I can use as a weapon? And I don't think they've told us, like, what, what do you do? Is this a case where you are supposed to make yourself look big or be loud? Or you know, do you play dead or do you fight back? I don't know. Suddenly, I don't have the right information. And the 
biggest, most dangerous thing I had with me was my telephoto lens on my camera. So I'm lying there in my bed, shaking like a leaf and holding my telephoto lens as if it will save me. <laughs> and the, the huffing noise gradually goes away. And I don't know if I actually got any sleep last, that night. Um, my husband slept through the whole thing, of course. Of, of course. course. Um, but I realized afterwards that it wasn't just like, oh, I was walking through the jungle and you know it, it was an area where there are tigers. It was every step of that journey. The fact that the guides were telling us these stories about you know, how to identify tigers and how to identify tigers that are more likely to attack humans, uh, pointing out the signs of the tiger, crossing the river and finding that the tracks were still wet. You know, and it was a masterclass in how to build suspense. How do you lay in the foreshadowing for something that's going to happen later on? You know, how do you bring someone to the edge of their seat and make them think that that their camera will somehow save their life? Uh, and just kind of without any one of those things, without hearing the guide's stories, without seeing the man who didn't have an ear, uh, would that night have been as terrifying as it was? And I think it would not. So it was an inadvertent class in in suspense. And yet it's a lesson that I've carried with me all this time. So looking back on it in hindsight, do you think that uh, some of that was put on like the prop of the, the guy's injury? Or do you think that was legit? He was really <laughs> scarred. Because now I'm wondering like, did they did they create this ambiance to scare people? Or was there just really <laughs> this, this tiger hunting everybody? Well, there were, Obviously, there were a lot more details than what I just gave you, um, you know, including some things that could be corroborated later, like the idea that uh, the the guide, the chef who had lost his ear, had been an elephant driver. So when he lost his ear, he was out collecting elephant grass to feed to the elephants. And tigers usually don't care about elephants. That's why you use them when you're going to hunt for tigers, or in this case, to go on a tiger safari and look for them. Uh, with your camera. So oftentimes when people go out in that area, um, they'll actually wear a mask on the back of their head. And you can see these masks and you know, there's a lot of, of photos of them um, and imagery about them because you know, the tiger doesn't want to be seen. So if the tiger can see your face, it is less likely to, to attack. So they would have these masks on the back of their head uh, oh. as a way to defend themselves. So, you know, I'm sure that okay. part of the storytelling around the campfire that night was sort of like, here's the the more exciting, the more lurid details about tigers. Um, but there were certainly a lot of aspects of it that uh, they, I don't think they could have invented. All right. So we'll uh, write that up there with uh, Marissa, who had an alligator thrown at her. So you're, you're <laughs> right up there at the animal stories. I think yours wins because, you know, tiger, tigers, you know. Yeah, no, I think yours actually wins. So. <laughs> but also, uh, if you're listening and you have a Yeti story, you, you know, we, mm. we're, we're, we're here to talk about it. I'm just saying. <laughs> Jagger has a soft spot in his heart for Yetis. Aw. It better be a very large soft spot. Because Yetis. Naturally, there's a movie in the uh, 80s about a Bigfoot that was like adopted by a family. I can't remember uh, the name That's of it. That's right. Yes. <laughs> so I remember watching that as a kid. I'm like, I want a pet Yeti. 
<laughs> so many bad jokes. They're just writing themselves in my head. So let's get back to the script before I say something too off color. So transitioning into things from the fandom angle, have you had any cool fan art or a cosplay of one of your characters yet? Well, Interestingly, so one of the series of books that I write is called The Bone Guard, and I describe them as uh, if Indiana Jones had served in special forces, it might be something like this. So archaeological thriller novels um, inspired by my research into medieval stuff often. And um, my son is a thriller reader. He's a fan of Clive Cussler and those guys. So I've actually read my books with him, uh, which is kind of fun. And then when book four, The Maya Bust, came out in September, I roped him into coming with me to the bookstore because I knew that the event had to be small because COVID, and I wanted to simulcast to Facebook. So um, he came, he sort of grudgingly came along to hold my phone, basically, so that I could get it on Facebook Live. Uh, and I read a passage from the book, which, you know, he, he had read the book and he enjoyed the book. So we're driving home and he's like, that was pretty neat. You know, next time I do that, I think I should like maybe I should get in character somehow. You know what would be great? I could cosplay as Grant Casey. I could have, you know, the the shorts that are described, you know, the the logo that's I'm going to need some sunglasses though and a hat. <laughs> and and so now he's accumulating all of his costume parts. Um and we participate in a weekly Nerf war every Friday night and our team our squad name is the Bone Guard from the books and now we all have the embroidered shirts. Uh, nice. He just got the sunglasses, so he's super proud about that. That's nice. so awesome. In, in the movie, that's super cool parenting right there. Using your battles. For the so win. the uh, the movie is Harry and the Hendersons, and it was from '87. I remember that. I, I had to Google it while we were talking because I bugged me that I didn't remember. <laughs> so if it's your homework, dear listener, go watch that and then then come back to me. In Okay. I, I already put her to sleep thinking about the uh, the '80s classics, but the '80s were like the lost generation for Doc. She she doesn't she didn't get that decade. They weren't lost. <laughs> I it. know exactly where I was. Yeah, you skipped it. That's cheating. I was in another country. It's not my fault. Yes, but you missed like the parachute pants and the big hair and the Aquafina. Like you just missed all the cool stuff. I, I was made in America, but assembled overseas. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go back to the fandom stuff then. Nostalgia is lost on you. So we all we already know somebody asked for your autograph, but what was it like the first time somebody asked for your autograph? It's it's really odd. Um, the Edith Wharton, a uh, famous writer, had said that when her first novel came out, it was remarkable to think that a person could just walk into a bookstore and ask for the book by Edith Wharton, and the clerk, without laughing would hand it over. Um, and, yeah, that was sort of the the impression because, you know, been working toward getting a book out for so long. And then suddenly there it is. And then there I am in a bookstore with a stack of these things going, oh my goodness, it is it is here the moment that I have spent all of this time um, you know, working towards and hoping it would, it would happen. And uh, I think I misspelled the name of the friend that I <laughs> made the book out for, unfortunately. Um, sad i do that I, with some regularity i have to admit and now all of my friends are like hey uh i will admit one of the things and i loved it when i i worked at a barnes and noble and we had at times some very nicely high profile people come in like we had um lady pioneer woman uh ray durham I oh yeah, yeah. Her last name 
But one of the things, and I thought it was just absolutely great, was we had a person there with sticky note, with sticky note, and we went, no, no, no. They go, no, no, let me write it. No, because we had somebody with very good, very clear penmanship <laughs> write yep. exactly what it was on the sticky note, and it went in the book. Okay, so that when it got to her, all she had to do was copy the sticky note. That is very <laughs> wise. I mean, one of my uh, favorite my signing moments was uh, when I had arranged a book signing uh, at uh, Borderlands in San Francisco, and um, one of their employees had graciously picked me up. I was a little disappointed because my flight came in a bit late, and they already had an author scheduled that day. It was Peter S. Beagle, who is absolutely one of Amazing. my favorites. Uh, so I had asked if they could ask him to sign a copy of the new edition of um, The Last Unicorn for me because I expected he would be gone by the time I got to the store. So when I arrived, he was still there and he was signing just a few more books, you know, signing stock. He is an extraordinarily marvelous person. Um, and so I, you know, I went up and I said, oh, I'm actually the author who's, who's signing after you. I have an event coming up with my first novel. And he took the next copy of The Last Unicorn off the stack and he wrote for Elaine, colleague, Peter S. Beagle. And it was Aww. like, oh, I'm one of us. <laughs> I'm, I'm a colleague cool. with somebody that, you know, I, I worshiped then and worship to this day. He is a right. sweet, sweet man. So I don't, uh, I don't do a lot of those kinds of things, mostly because it's different when you're traditionally published versus indie published and when you got into the market. <laughs> but uh, I did one um, and I was, I went to RavenCon before they moved it too far away. And somebody asked me for an autograph so the year my first book came out. And I guess they had read it because it was did well that year on the Mill Sci-Fi side. And I was so nervous I spelled my own name wrong. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'll buy you I'll buy you another copy and fix it. He goes, No, this will be worth more. Your name is two letters, J R. Oh my gosh, I have a Tad Williams story too, but this isn't supposed to be about telling stories about everybody else, but <laughs> No, no, I, well, we like Ted Williams. I've read his book. So if you want to tell that story, we've got time. Doc so, doesn't need to sleep. Um, I, a while back, uh, shortly after I had left college, which I went to in Providence, Rhode Island, I was at Rhode Island School of Design. And uh, Tad Williams was doing a signing at the Angel Street Bookshop. Um, so I had a couple of friends still locally who were big fans and I was in town for some other event. I was like, oh my goodness, I have to get in a little bit early so that we can go to Tad's signing. And as it turned out, you know, my husband and I and this little group of friends, we were the only people there, which kind of surprised me, but you know, one of those, one of those evenings. So, um, and this was a little bit before I was published, but while I was kind of waiting to hear back from, from the editors, um, I I started holding the books for him, you know, with the hardcovers so that he could sign. And uh, so he was chatting to me and sort of giving me all of this insider advice about how to get published and how to be published well and how to work with an editor. And it was just awesome. It was fantastic. I was willing to stand there all night and he had a big stack of books. And then he opened one of the books and he kind of frowned at it, turned the book over and opened the back frowned again and realized that the book block had been inserted upside down. So um, this was uh, for Silverlight and the there are character um, images on the end pages. So in relation to the book block, the characters were all upside down. And so while Tad is sitting there telling me all these things that I should know about publishing, he starts making all of these little word bubbles for the characters. Ah! 
I'm falling out of the book. Oh no, I'm upside down. Just every single character. There's like 20 of them on, on each of the end pages. And he's just kind of doing this whole thing while he's talking. So, you know, the bookstore person is sort of coming over to see how it's going. Are we done yet? Are we going to be there all night? And I said, that one, that one is mine. <laughs> yeah. So, did they make you pay for it? They they did. But yeah. Just, <laughs> and, and at some point later on, like after my first, um, my second series came out with Dawes. So he and I were actually with the same publisher and I get to have dinner with him on one occasion, which was a couple of occasions, I guess, which are absolutely extraordinary. Again, one of those moments where it's like, I'm one of us. Um, and he told the story about one of his first book signings where the store was adjacent to a, uh, a shop where they could get beer. So they had, and he had signed all of the stock and had perhaps had a little beer and said, oh, bring me something else and I'll sign it. So the employee who was working with him kept just pulling books off the shelf, just random books. <laughs> <laughs> and he started signing them with random names. <laughs> that is awesome. I bet the management was not happy about that. I, I don't know what they thought the next morning. They, I, as far as I know, they just slid them right back onto the shelf. No one was the wiser until someone pulled the book off the shelf and wondered why it had been signed uh, Adolf Hitler. So, <laughs> among others. Oh, my. So I got to ask, and I'm not sure you can tell me, but do you have any funny or crazy fan interactions that you would like to tell us one about? <laughs> Those are all some pretty amazing stories you've given us. Death scene in hallways. Well, drunken sure. signings. <laughs> the, um, one of the most remarkable and, and unexpected interactions that I had with a fan um was when my husband and I had been on a little trip. I think it was our anniversary. So we'd sort of gone away for a couple of nights. We're on our way back and we both needed some maple syrup for friends. Like, oh, we'll look for a farm stand. So we're driving through Western Massachusetts, the middle of absolutely nowhere on this rolling country road. And we see a farm stand. Great. Okay, let's stop and see if they have maple syrup. So uh, they were advertising hay rides and such. So we have to drive up this long driveway and the, um, there's a woman outside who has just harnessed these two amazing, huge black um, horses uh, to the hayride. And she said, oh, do you want to join the hayride? We're about to start. Sure. OK. So she takes us on the hayride along with this other family and you know, sort of points out all the sites of the farm. And then we go back to the shop where um, they have a bunch of varieties of honey, which I'm also interested in. So she was kind of working, restocking some shelves and such. And suddenly she turns around to me and she says, your voice sounds really familiar. Have you been on any podcasts? <laughs> and how obscure is this? You know, I'm in the middle of nowhere in this lost corner of Massachusetts at a at a farm. And I said, well, not really. And then I thought, oh wait, actually, um, I've done some for the Odyssey Speculative Fiction Workshop because I've been an instructor there. So I know that they had had done some Q&As that they had put out on the Odyssey podcast. And she said, oh, yes, I really loved your session on world building. Wait, what? <laughs> and it turned out that she was an aspiring fantasy writer who spent her time while she was working with the animals and doing various farm tasks, listening to writing podcasts. Uh, but I thought how extraordinary that she recognized my voice from, from having done this podcast. Um, so you awful. never know where these things will take you, right? So now JR gets to actually put on his hat and think. 
I, I don't do that. Oh, wait, no. First, we're actually going to cut to a commercial break. And because um, this is how JR earns his keep, is my trying to keep the outlines going and reminding me to do commercial breaks. So <laughs> we'll do that. If Princess Lenathena cannot stave off civil war, then a mad goddess will surely take the throne. The king of Lithonia is dying. When he is gone, Lithonia will be ruled by either a cruel sadist or a six-year-old boy. Princess Lenathena Morthon is third in line, and she has no intention of letting her country burn. She will do whatever she must to protect her people, even if that means leaving the country she loves. When the mad goddess of Hathor sets her gaze upon Lithonia's throne, the king decides to use Princess Lenathena as a bargaining chip with his closest allies in Kaeldanon. Now stranded in a foreign country, away from her center of political power, Lenathena must use every tool at her command to scrape together allies and save her country from a fate worse than death. But will her would-be husband be one of those allies, or just another enemy? Author Christina Gruel de debuts with a dark, high-stakes political fantasy, where every new face hides a potential threat. Pick up From the Ashes and discover the shadow games that will determine the future of several nations. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that commercial interlude. Doc was going to try to take her over, but I don't know if you heard this in the pro show because, you know, while we were on the commercial break, I actually fired her again in Dr. Pay. So it's just going to be one of those things. Um, so, yeah, she's, she's yet I'm still here because nobody listens to you, except for our um, listeners. <laughs> they like me better than you, honest. <laughs> Uh, and if you want to send the hate mail, send the hate mail to DocSaskad, Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, so, right, this is where we talk about everything the great and wonderful Miss E.C. Ambrose <laughs> has written. So can you give us the uh, the Reader's Digest version of your body of work? Of, of all the things. So I uh, started out with a traditional fantasy series called The Singer's Legacy. Um, this is a generational saga in which the solutions for one generation become the problems for the next generation, which I think is often how the world works. So uh, kings, princes, magic, some romance, that kind of thing. Uh, Tales of Blade's End is my epic fantasy novella series in which the heroes of the Demon War believe that their battles are won until they try to go home. Uh, Dark Apostle series I've talked about a little bit. So this is the dark historical fantasy about medieval surgery. It's a 14th century barber surgeon who discovers he has an unnatural affinity with death. He learns diabolical magic to confront a tyrant, but the cost may be more than his soul. And there are five books now complete for your binge reading pleasure. Uh, <laughs> the... It's like he knows me. <laughs> Uh, and then the Bone Guard series, the archaeological thrillers, uh, there's four out of those so far. Uh, the Mongol's Coffin is the first one, uh, inspired by the search for Genghis Khan's tomb. Uh, and yeah, those are just a blast to write. You are in good company with books about the search for uh, Genghis Khan's tomb. Uh, Tom mm. Clancy did one of those, I believe. No, Clive Cussler. It was Clive Cussler that yep. did one. But so uh, those all sound fascinating. But today we're going to talk about your new novel, Drake Master. So where did you get the premise for this universe? Um, How did you come up with the, the concepts? Now, interestingly, The Mongol's Coffin, which was the first archaeological thriller, and Drake Master kind of came about at the same time because I have a longstanding fascination with Mongolian history and culture. So I was doing a lot of reading and uh, thought, well, you know, this is a lot of research to go to for just writing one book. Maybe I could write two uh, that are very, very different from each other. So, but Drake Master 
actually came out of a footnote. I have a fascination with early clockworks and astronomical devices, which are often intimately intertwined. And in one of the books I was reading, there was a, a footnote referring to an astronomical clock made in China in around 1090. Uh, and what the footnote said was a, a reference to the vermilion pens of the ladies' secretarial. I thought, what on earth are they talking about? So Susang's astronomical clock was built uh, you know, designed and built to create really accurate horoscopes for the children of the emperor to determine which child would be the most suitable successor. And the ladies secretarial, it was their job to write down all of the information about the horoscope so that they could get these this very accurate uh, prediction for what sort of emperor the child would be. And I sort of put that together with some ideas around um, their beliefs about how the stars work and what kind of influence the stars have on the planet below uh, to create a doomsday device. Because that's not scary enough. Well, no. <laughs> all right. So before we dig in any deeper into that story, because we want to hear all about it, we're going to take a moment. We're going to look at this glorious cover. So what is the story of this piece of art? Like where, where did the concepts behind this image come from? So at the center there, you see an armillary sphere, and this one is in the sort of classic um, Ming Dynasty form, supported by the four dragons representing the winds. Uh, and an armillary sphere is uh, sort of an observational device where you can track different types of celestial bodies. Uh, and they show up frequently in the book. I have about four armillary spheres in my office right now, because maybe I'm a little bit obsessed. Uh, but a friend of mine had offered to make the cover for a little giveaway version that we brought to the World Fantasy Convention and a couple of other conventions uh, where we took the first couple of chapters of the book as kind of a free sample. And then the editor uh, over at Garbage Books, who's bringing out the book, kind of liked how that cover turned out. And he said, do you suppose your friend would be willing to make the cover for the finished version? And I said, you know, I bet he would really enjoy that. So uh, there's also an astrolabe down there, another early astronomical device, often used um, in navigation. And it has Mongolian script over the top that is an approximation of the title of the book, Drake Master. Oh, that's nice. Let me see if I can zoom in enough. You did give us a high-res version. So you've got the images on the actual dragons. Uh, if you look at it's holding the astrolabe. The glorious image of the stars that even my colorblind butt can have. And then I'm guessing this is the um, this is the Mongolian script. Yes. Yep, Mongolian has a vertical script. Um, interestingly, they didn't have a written language until Genghis Khan started uh, you know, sort of taking over most of the world at that time. And he observed the way, especially in China, their bureaucracy was extraordinarily efficient because they had that written language that they could use to capture and carry on ideas and traditions and to pass information throughout the empire. So he basically commanded a script to be created for the Mongolian language. Interesting. All right, let's keep that on the screen while we talk. All right, Doc, pretend like you're paying attention and ask the next question. <laughs> I was paying attention. I was going to ask, what is your 30-second elevator pitch for this? It is a deadly race across medieval China to locate a clockwork doomsday device. And what is it that really kind of brings your book and makes it special and unique? Um, 
it's a team of rivals, essentially. Uh, there is a Lithuanian bellmaker, uh, the spy who was supposed to kill him, the Mongol captain who took him prisoner and impressed him into the Mongolian army, and uh, an astronomer's daughter and a warrior monk. So each of them has a stake in the fight. And uh, each of them wants the device or wants to stop the device for reasons of their own. So the question is, will they be able to overcome those rivalries to come together for the greater good? Okay, and if you want to know the answer to that question, you have to buy the book. Indeed. Dear yeah. <laughs> so, um, which trips do you really think that you utilized in Drake Master? Which tropes? Yeah. Um, so, I mentioned a little bit earlier when we were talking off the air about you know the the wounded hero and those um, things that I'm always attracted to, and redemption arcs are another sort of big draw for me. There's something that. Um, excites me about the idea that uh, people can always change, that people can find a way, can find their higher self and strive for that, um, even if they're in a bad state, even if they've been responsible for some level of evil in the world. So that's definitely in there as well. Um, and that sense of the, the team of rivals that I mentioned is another strong one. I would definitely think that the um, redemption arc is sort of a universal trope that, I mean, unless you're a sociopath or doc, you know, most people do enjoy those. <laughs> I'm okay with it. There's no redeeming me. It's fine. <laughs> um, that's why I read books. So, and um, so what subgenres do you feel that this really fits into? JR loves the subgenres. Uh -huh. And he loves making me ask about them. <laughs> because you don't love them as much. So obviously it's a historical I do fantasy. not love them as much, but I do find them useful. Mm. It's true. And they are really... like a scientist when it comes to the subgenre thing. And I'm just like, and... Maybe I should you know, get some help from, from JR on my marketing. So now I'm going to clip the JR as a scientist out, out of context, and air that <laughs> all the time. I'm going to buy a soundboard just to use that when she tries to make fun of me. I'm like, she's going to say, JR is a scientist. JR is a scientist. Totally. JR is also a flaming nut job, but that's okay too. <laughs> well, well you, that you can use that clip for something else. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I find it fascinating because it's, I mean, the readers have always been there for those style of stories, right? Like that I like to read about X. But it wasn't until like the ebook really and the digital marketplace where that, people started thinking about categorizing them to that degree. Yeah, and I think I have Ken Liu to thank for the real designation for the book, which is Silk Punk. Uh, there have been fantasies based in Asian cultures and mythologies for a long time. But uh, Ken Liu, aside from the fact that he's written several seminal works that would fit in it, uh, coined the term Silk Punk as. Uh, that sort of punking a technology that arises from that kind of culture instead of from the more traditional uh, sort of Western cultures. So, okay, I'm adding that to the uh, to the notes. Genghis Khan and Silk Punk. 
I have never heard of this. I, I've been um, recently introduced to Gaslit, gla- Gaslamp Punk. Uh, with mm-hmm. Gaslight or Gaslamp. Yeah, yeah Gaslamp. So I, I, I'm learning all the punk things. I thought punk was a thing we did in the 80s with rock and roll uh, and bad. No, JR. No, JR. <laughs> Too much dad. He doesn't know anything about punk because he's not that cool. Oh, no, I was, I was never that. Neither am I. So that's okay. <laughs> so, so silk punk. Okay. Is that a, is that a genre that you guys just call it among yourselves or is that a, a recognized thing with the, uh, the digital bookshelving? That is a good question. I know that it's been sort of percolating out there more um, since Ken started talking about it. How far has it perked? I'm not sure. Um, I guess I'll find out in a couple of weeks when the book comes out. Okay. Um, so let's talk about the story itself now. What can you tell us about your main? Well, it sounds like you have a cast of main characters. What can you tell us about your main characters? What makes them unique in the crowded field of science fiction and fantasy? So uh, Dalis, who is the Lithuanian bellmaker, um, is unique because he's a craftsman. He's not a warrior and he's not a magic user, which are kind of the, the typical classes that you often see as uh, leads in and fantasy novels. Uh, He's a person whose power comes from his ability to create and to understand the creative process. So that plays out in some different ways throughout his his story. Uh, In particular, at the beginning when he basically volunteers to take over from the the weapons maker for the Khan who has been assassinated. And Daedalus thinks, well, the cannons that they're making out of bronze are not that much different from the bells that I've been casting. And so he steps up thinking that this is going to be the way that he earns his freedom and can finally go home to his family. Uh, and of course, that's not exactly how how it all goes down. So uh, it was interesting sort of exploring both my Lithuanian heritage through that character and then also the, the craft um, angle and what bronze casting was like then uh, i have some experience in that from my art school background so doc is big in crafty stuff she likes to stab yarn with needles nice. so so we, we do appreciate the arts and crafts here on uh, the blasters and blades podcast i do not have an artistic bone in my body when it comes to that so i just watch other people and be like oh that's pretty you just watch uh, other people and then give us reasons to stab things this is true. I, it's you know, it's it's the cross I bear to make art better for the world. So you know, you're welcome, world. Enjoy the art and know somebody was mad at me when they made it. Um, <laughs> so besides the the Lithuanian bell maker, were there any other main characters? Because you said it was a sort of a a cast of people that didn't really like each other. Um, I forget the expression you used, but um, were those main characters, or would those other people have been like secondary to you? They are. There there are essentially five protagonists. There are five rotating narrators through the book whose stories interweave um, and who clash with with each other and with, of course, other characters in the book. Um, the astronomer's daughter, uh, who herself is has a lot of training as an astronomer, is kind of the person who's trying to sound the alarm about the potential danger that she sees coming in the sky. Uh, and she is the person who has a lot of scientific knowledge and sort of understanding of how the sky works. Uh, and she is trying desperately to get somebody to pay attention. And she's a little surprised at the person who finally does, who finally hears her message and takes that to heart. Um, the assassin, the spy, 
maybe I shouldn't say too much about that character, but was uh, was certainly a lot of fun to write. It's interesting having the variety of perspectives because I can show you different sides of the same character through what they're thinking and sort of how they're viewing the world and then how they are viewed by other characters in the book and how those things might change as the character arcs develop. That's interesting. <clears throat> so did you write this as a braided novel where each story sort of stands alone and then you wove them together or did you write it as a coherent narrative? Not to say that braided novels are not coherent, but it's just a different style of, of organizing a story. Right, it's a little different structure. Uh, they were definitely all uh, working together around the same set of conflicts and, and concerns, even though each of the characters is carrying their own sort of goal, motivation, and conflict that will propel them through the story. Uh, they're working on, along similar paths, but for different reasons, which is one of the things that always intrigues me about a book. Okay. And for the listeners, if you're not familiar with the concept of a braided novel, because it would sound like every novel that has more than one POV would be, what makes braided novels unique is that if you unbraided the novel uh, in a true braided novel, each of those independent story arcs stands alone as a complete story. So that's the distinction. Uh, and if you want a good example of what that looks like, uh, Kristen Catherine Rush wrote Hell Divers or the Space Divers. There's divers in the title. Um, it's been a while <laughs> since I read it. But, well, I uh, think you could also one is like... Um... Mercedes Lackey's Obsidian Trilogy. I haven't read that one. I've read a lot of her work. That's she co-wrote it, and it was it's really fascinating because one's from the POV of the villain, and one's from the POV of the um, hero character. <laughs> and she co-wrote it, and you could definitely tell that one author took one POV and one took the other, and it was beautifully done. Mm. That would be really fun to do and then leave the to the last minute where the the audience doesn't know who the villain is and who the good guy is. That could <laughs> be a lot of fun because you don't know even the villains are heroes in their own story. I think well, famous, famous it's that she kind of does do some of that because there's definitely uh, an aspect of it where you're like, wait, this is the good guy, but he, that's not good. Yeah. So the uh, one other example of that that did it well was uh, Richard Fox co-wrote a novel, and I'm drawing a blank on the title, but it was a braided novel with Jonathan Brazy. Brazy? I never pronounce his name right. Um, but uh, that's another example. They're fun stories to read, but back to your story, because that's why we're here. Um, so you've told us about the main protagonist. What about any secondary characters that were memorable and fun for you? So um, originally there was the possibility that there would be six narrators because there is an important secondary character who carries through most of the work and propels some of the action. Um, but I decided to, to hold back on him a little bit and he may, if I get the opportunity to write more books in the series, uh, be a narrative voice in the future. But he is a, um, a Jewish person from the city of Kaifeng. So he is both Jewish and Chinese. And that's a very interesting conjunction of um, of beliefs and understandings. So uh, it was fun doing the research. And that's actually one of the reasons why the book is set in Kaifeng is because it was this extraordinary sort of multicultural place. The Jewish population there settled there went around the year 800 or so when they were invited in by a previous emperor who wanted his nation to be more cosmopolitan. And he had heard about these very learned people uh, who were merchants in India. So he invited a group of um, Jewish merchants to come and settle in China. And they did. And there are still people in Kaifeng who uh, say that they have Jewish ancestry going back to that point. But of course, some of the Chinese characters who have a stronger belief in sort of the 
the importance of the purity of sort of ethnic uh, Han, the ethnic Han people, uh, are kind of giving him the side eye because he can he really be Chinese if he is also Jewish? Uh, so there's a lot of interesting tension both within and around that character. So that's the other thing they were known for from a historic, is they were also brought in because uh, places that didn't have their own science base would bring them in because they were known for for their involvement in the sciences as well. It's a fascinating thing to study. But so that, that leads me to the next question. Is this set in actual world as we know it today with just the, the extra bits added in? Or is this sort of an alternate reality? Um, like how would you classify the world where the story is told? Because it sounds like it's, based in the modern world with with the extras, almost like a, a modern urban fantasy would be. Is that is that accurate? Right. Um, Tim Powers had used the term secret histories to refer to uh, historical novels in which there is a sort of vein of the speculative that's underlying the historical events. Uh, so it's a similar approach to what I did with the Dark Apostle books. And Drake Master is set into a very particular time and place, Kaifeng, China, in the year 1257. Um, Kaifeng at that time was actually rebellion against the Mongol army, which had swept down from the north and was now heading even further south uh, to perhaps um, take on the rest of the remaining Chinese empire. And uh, Kaifeng took advantage of the fact that they were now behind the lines to rebel against their Mongolian governor. Uh, so all of that is is real. And the astronomical clock that my device is based on is real. And I try to thread in as many real elements as I can, and then suggest that perhaps this entire magical underpinning has been there all along. Uh, perhaps the beliefs that we have about the magical world are also true in the same way that those historical details are true. So are you a classically trained historian or just uh, someone who's self, self-taught to do all this? Um, I, I'm a devoted amateur historian. Some of the best kind. All right. So you. <laughs> Doc, calm down. I'm laughing at you. So, You're supposed to be funny, right? You're fired. I'm going to dock your pay again. You're going to get negative zero now. Uh, so uh -oh. does your story... Yeah. Does your story have any bad guys that the characters confront? Obviously, we can't give away any spoilers. So what can you tell us about the antagonists with, without spoiling the novel? Well, it's not spoiling too much to say that uh, in chapter one, while the monk character, who's one of the protagonists, is working in the temple of the Sarira, who are supposed to be uh, to have achieved such a great uh, degree of enlightenment that they are completely still for hundreds of years. And he does something that disturbs one of them. And the, the monk gets up and has an argument with him and then starts walking away, uh, much to his dismay. And that is the character who kind of kicks off the search for the device because he wants to know if it's still there and still waiting. Uh, and there's a lot of other characters who are also interested in getting their hands on it. So, but um, Master Deng, who is the, uh, the dead monk who arises <laughs> after so long, is the one who, who is carrying that plot thread out of the past and potentially into the future. Okay. So I think I might know how this is going to play out, but get based off of how you introduced yourself at the beginning of the show. But how do you think your characters would feel if they met you 
and they knew you were their author and you're the reason <laughs> for all of this for everything that well um Yusin, who is my Mongol captain, would uh, probably shoot me full of arrows or drive a lance through my heart right away. Although he'd probably regret it a little while afterward because there are also some benefits to going through the trials that I put them through. Um, Elisha, who is perhaps the worst, the person that I have most abused, his fatal flaw is compassion. So I think he would be extremely dismayed to meet me, but he would quite possibly stand between me and my other characters when they came to the assault um, and thus be all the more tragic because of it. So that's okay. Do you have a, well, you earlier, you mentioned your favorite character archetype is the wounded hero, right? Mm -hmm. So, but why? Wow, that is a big question. Very Socratic of you, Doc. I'm impressed. <laughs> so part of it goes to the idea that um, that you can't necessarily be a great hero without overcoming things. Um, you know, people who are pure, perfect, and unblemished, uh, I think have a tendency to sort of to, to rest on their laurels, to think everything is just fine, just as it should be. Uh, whereas people who have been wounded are the ones who also have that urge to change things, to make things better, whether to make things better for themselves or for those who come after. Um, you know, even sort of circling back around to the Lord of the Rings books that we talked about earlier there's that great moment when Frodo is back in the Shire but he tells Sam that he's leaving and Sam is surprised and Frodo says you know we've saved the Shire Sam but not for me um, you know Frodo starts out relatively naive and innocent and becomes wounded in various ways over the course of that narrative uh, and needs to come to grips with that and sort of understand himself better as a result um, and that is how he displays his heroism, is through how he deals with his wounds. So Mike Tyson, actually, you know, vaunted philosophical uh, person that he is, the uh, the reason that the wounded people make the best his um, best heroes, although he wasn't talking about that, was his famous quote about everybody's a boxer until they get punched in the face. There's something <laughs> about having that experience of real life, you know, the the uh, intellectual meets reality phase that, that sort of shapes you as a person that allows you to go forward and do the things. Whereas someone who spent their whole life in that ivory tower, you know, whatever that ivory tower happens to be, uh, they just don't have any grounding in reality to do that. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think you're right that the, the people with the checkered past sometimes make the best heroes. If nothing else, they make the most interesting ones to read about. Mm -hmm. And it changes yeah. your priorities. Yeah. It, it, it sort of bumps you out of, potentially a, a straightforward track from past through present to future um, and into another realm of possibilities, sometimes dangerous and uncomfortable possibilities, but also for greater rewards. Okay. So you've told us a bit about the universe and um, can you give us kind of a hint of what to expect from is it a high magic universe or is it like you said, one of those secret 
histories where it's all kind of very subtly woven in? Um, it's relatively secret. It It is set among people who largely believe that the supernatural is possible and is probable. Um, so their lives and actions are illuminated by that understanding. Um, one of the tropes that the book does explore that uh, I didn't mention earlier is, is Shangri-La, the idea of finding oh. a hidden valley that will open your eyes to a world that you didn't realize was was present or was possible. Um, so I'm hoping that that effect comes through for the readers, that um, they'll have a sense that magic is sort of suffusing this world, but it's it's underneath the layers and you have to sort of peel back a few layers before you get those first glimpses. Okay. So um, given that this story is uh, alt history or, or secret histories with all of the alt history that's out there, because I've read a lot of alt history. I love that stuff. <laughs> is there any, if you living or dead, if you could co-write with any other alt history author or, or secret history author, which, which would you pick? This is my nerd zone, so I'm, I'm totally into this. <laughs> well, I, I mentioned Tim Powers briefly earlier. Um, I think that Tim Powers is phenomenal and bizarre, and it would be really cool and interesting to see what uh, what we might come up with together. Uh, okay. All right. That's a good answer. I'll accept it. Uh, yeah, I, I like that. Doc's uh, nerding out over there. Um, or actually, she's, she's mocking me, but that's the same thing. <laughs> Mockery is her nerd zone. So, okay. That's, you know, so uh, right now, <laughs> no, mockery is my love language when it comes to you, JR. Oh, so right now, Drake Master is part of a, is a standalone story. Uh, but is, is it done at the end of this novel? Will there be more from these characters? I, I certainly hope so. Okay. Um, so we also know that every literary universe has their own internally consistent rules of technology and or magic. So what can we expect from tech or magic that you sort of highlight in this world? I think the period you're writing in isn't one most people are familiar with. So can you sort of tell the, the readers what to expect? Oh, there's a bunch of cool and awesome things, uh, many of which were inspired by uh, Joseph Needham's Science and Civilization of China, which is a multi-volume encyclopedia of cool knowledge from the history of China, uh, in particular volume four, which is the engineering one. Um, so if you read volume four, then you might get a sense of what's going to happen in the book. Uh, I've mentioned a lot of the astronomical devices, so those certainly play a significant role in a wide variety of circumstances within the book. Uh, there are also a lot of references and, and use of the military technology of the time, like the fire lances that the Chinese were using to defend their cities. And of course, the, um, the fire drakes, the weapons that the Mongolians are using to attack those cities. There might be man-flying kites. Um, many things, wonderful things. <laughs> All right. Well, I could nerd out on this stuff forever and we could start talking, but we might lose the audience. So we'll let, we'll let Doc uh, move on to the next question. <laughs> I can already see her like falling asleep. I'm not falling asleep. I'm just, she is fascinating. You I'm used to. Um... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a backhanded compliment if I ever heard one. Wait, I was supposed to be complimenting you? 
It's in the rule um, It's on page 13. <laughs> yeah, no. It wasn't in the script, it. apparently. That's yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I gotta do a better job. Um if you had to pick some piece of tech from or magic, because you have a bit of both mm-hmm. from your universe to have now here, what would it be? If I could actually draw down the magic of the stars for good or ill to use upon the earth that would be pretty awesome so what would you do with it and how would you abuse it yes because that's the fun question is how they abuse it (laughs) for 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 ill yes (laughs) as opposed to for good well sometimes they're flip sides of the same coin um i think we can all think of perhaps a, a a certain world leader who may need to be put in his place in a permanent fashion. And Look, I told you I was going to be a benevolent world leader. All right. Just, just relax. <sighs> sorry. Sorry, Doc. I blew the secret. I didn't it's it. okay. It's okay. We let JR have his delusions because unlike other people, his delusions really don't hurt anybody else. They just Most kind of harmless. entertain me. So. <laughs> Um, now, do you have any fantastic creatures in this? This one, no. Uh, I do have a book that I'm shopping right now that has dragon-like aliens in it. And uh, it was a lot of fun creating those characters by researching sort of offbeat animal skills and senses, um, in particular bioelectric senses. I often am uh, inspired by scientific details like that to create new stuff. So, okay, that's a that is a good answer to the next question. She didn't get a chance to ask yet, but um, <laughs> do you ever do you ever let things like um, your nightmares or, or you know traditional fantasy type lore inspire you as well? Uh one of my books that is sort of an intersection between scientific inspiration and uh, nightmare inspiration. You know, a lot of people say that they get inspired by dreams, but dream logic usually makes no sense at all. Um, so I, I can't imagine actually writing a book from that, except that this one occasion I had this very odd dream filled with science importance. And when I woke up in the middle of the night from this dream, I thought, well, those things were very odd and kind of gruesome. Who would do a thing like that? And immediately I thought, well, the Gorgolin would do it. And then I had to know who or what are the Gorgolin. And uh, they turned out to be a race of giant lizards who live inside of a dying volcano. And the biological bit is that for a lot of reptiles, the temperature of the egg determines the gender of the baby. So uh, they kind of default to a particular gender um, if the eggs are too cold. So for these lizards, I thought, well, then the default gender is female because it's easier to have cold eggs than warm ones. And so that single idea became the basis of their entire society. So, you know, the poor lizards would live further away from the volcano. So their eggs are likely to be colder. They would likely have more female babies the females would become the warriors because they're now expendable you're kind of all of these ripple effects that that one decision had um so i wrote two books in that series which i haven't been shopping around yet um 
but that's kind of the intersection between dream and biology. I like it. So clearly this uh, interview is winding down. Uh, we've been at it for a while and uh, I might nerd out too much and put Doc to sleep. So, so we're going to wrap this up instead. So was there anything about Drake Master that we didn't ask you that you want to tell us before we move on? It's going to be coming out in print and in eBooks and uh, it may not be immediately on your bookshelves, but you should be able to order it from just about anybody um, once it gets out there. All right. And is it going to be an audiobook as well for those of us that like to be read to? Uh, I don't think there's an audiobook in the works at the current time, but the um, you know, the publisher and I have talked about audio in the past. So you know, I'm hoping that we'll be able to make something happen. It would be a little tricky to find someone who can do you know, all five of the characters and then also Mongolian and Chinese language. Yeah, <laughs> oh, and a little bit of Lithuanian. So you'd have to almost have a, a ensemble cast to do the audiobook. There's a name for that Maybe style so. of audiobook, but I don't know what it's called. Yeah. Um, okay. So, all right, dear listener, before we let you go, we'd like to harken back to our roots uh, back on the Sci-Fi Shenanigans podcast and say that um, please be kind and speak your minds on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. So, so do the thing. Uh, if you buy it on a platform, review it there. If you can't review it there, uh, review it on bookbub and goodreads and if they won't let you over there for whatever reason because you know sometimes they're discerning audiences and they don't like people uh i mean doc is kicked <laughs> off of goodreads i don't know why but uh she probably tried to say that uh, uh mccaffrey wrote uh sci-fi instead of fantasy and is a thing people um but uh, if you can't review it there then uh write a blog start a blog just to review the books and then do the things because your reviews matter uh Parnas fantasy changed my mind dragons make fantasy but um, that's a. Oh, you have thoughts on this? Okay. Do you have? Do we have time for this? <laughs> How do these thoughts go? Okay. Probably not. <laughs> uh, one of these days, that is going to be a fireside chat because Doc, I've been like needling her about this topic since 2018, so <laughs> it's an ongoing discussion. But here's uh, the thing: there, <laughs> I am right because I heard it straight from Anne. So therefore, you're wrong. So I actually took English literature classes in college and they did tell me that once the author writes the book, he doesn't have to know or she doesn't have to know or be right because, you know, they interviewed, there's a famous one about the blue curtains and they kept saying it meant this and this and this. And the author was like, no, the, the blue curtains were just because I like that color. So they came up with this wonderful theory that says the author might not know that. Except for the fact that when the <laughs> author specifically says something. <laughs> Except apparently she's telling a different story than the one that Todd tells. Because yeah. that's the story yeah, that I know. But, uh, <laughs> but she muted me. This is what happens when you give her I, all I, the I, uh, yeah. admin power. It's just, it's raining cats and dogs, people. But uh, before she mutes me again, uh, Miss Elaine E.C. Ambrose, can you tell listeners how they can find you on the wild, wild interwebs? Um, you can find me on Facebook or Twitter as E.C. Ambrose or E.C. Ambrose Author. Um, my author website is at Rosinante Books, uh, spelled like the name of Don Quixote's horse or some spaceship that people have been watching on television or maybe reading books about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's where I was going with it, although I have read Don Quixote as well. It, it was Don Quixote's horse before it got that far. Uh, or if you go over to the Guardbridge Books website, which is guardbridgebooks.co.uk, that is where you will find information about Drake Master specifically, and also the links for buying the said book and for downloading the free sample. Okay, and free samples are good. So we will have all those links in the show notes. 
You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email the podcast at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. That is a real address. I promise you most of the time Doc answers it. Uh, she says that uh, I, I'm not nice enough or something. I don't know. There was insults involved and she took over the, the email. Uh, I we have a- her is doing it. There was nothing else to it. <laughs> So we have a Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen, which is facebook.com backslash groups backslash a blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash a blasters and blades podcast. We have a website at anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades, where you can also support us for as little as 99 cents a month. You can help keep the lights on uh, and keep Doc Seska in her booze because she's nicer when she's drunk. Uh, so again, that's <laughs> anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades. Uh, or you could support the show over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly intoxicated. They will drink until their liver surrenders. Never surrender. Nobody likes a quitter. <laughs> All right. Oh, and before we let you go. This is a very important question, uh, Madam Elaine. Uh, pineapple on pizza, yay or nay? Oh, no, no, no. Okay, no. she gets to come back. At least the right answer. All right, Phew. Doc, bring us home. Okay, so thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For the absentee, as usual, Nick Garber and J.R. Hanley, I'm Seska. This was the Blasters and Billiards podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, picking on J.R., all things that go boom, and of course, making fun of Nick until he makes me a comic. <laughs> and he just released so one, Solarian that. Prime. Uh, so, so go buy that comic, people, and do the thing. Help him keep the lights on. And uh, thank you for stopping by. This was a lot of fun, uh, for real. And uh, so, we look forward to having you again. Thanks Doc so much, <laughs> Again. <laughs>